in our 13th and I believe final session on Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, we are going to move from eternity to eternity. Eternity past to eternity future. Ask where it all started and see where it's all going. So let's read the whole thing again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So there's the beginning. Way back before there was any creation in the universe, he chose us in Christ that we should be holy and blameless before him. So that's a purpose that would come off in the future somewhere, but not at the very end. It's not the ultimate thing mentioned here. In love, he predestined us. That's looking forward again. Happened in the past, this choosing and this predestined before the foundation of the world, but it's going somewhere for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So that, I would argue, is the deepest dark, eternity, or deepest, very bright eternity past, meaning all this choosing, all this predestining before the foundation of the world happened, rooted most deeply and eternally in the purpose of his will. And now comes the most ultimate statement in the book, the whole book of Ephesians. Everything is moving to this, because when you say it, you realize you can't make it a means of anything. And that's what I'm always looking for is what's the ultimate purpose of everything? The ultimate purpose meaning that which is not a means to anything, but the end of everything. So all of this choosing, all of this predestining, all of this adoption, all this holiness, all this blamelessness, all planned before the foundation of the world and worked out in history is unto, this is purpose here, unto an end, a purpose, the praise of the glory of his grace. That's the ultimate purpose. And I remember how blown away I was when I noticed that this wasn't just here, which was glorious enough in and of itself as the ultimate end of all these amazing things. But I went to the end of the sentence down in 11 to 14 and watch what happens. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now that's very much like the purpose of his will here. According to the purpose of his will, he's doing all of this. And here it's according to the counsel of his will, he is working all all things, we'll, we'll say more about that when we get there, so that we who first were to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So there's the second statement of that ultimate purpose, be to the praise of his glory. It doesn't mention grace here because the focus is on glory, but it is the glory of grace most amazingly. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So it had a rock-solid beginning in eternity with election and predestination. It is ending with an absolute guarantee of the sealing of the Holy Spirit as our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of 
His glory. One, two, and three. So, everything begins back here in eternity with glorious grace. And everything moves through history and comes to a climax in eternity with the praise of that glory, the glory of his grace. And notice, lest it go uh, unmentioned, to the praise of the glory of his grace with which, now that which right there refers to grace or the glory of his grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. He's going to say one more time, in the beloved. So this grace, which is the goal of everything, the praise of the glory of the grace is the goal of everything. That grace was lavished on us, blessed us in the beloved, which is a reminder that this was the eternal ground of our election. He chose us in him, that is, in the beloved. And in choosing us in him, it becomes clear that this grace, this grace was in the beloved. That's why I say in eternity back here, glorious grace was the ground of our choosing, the ground of our being predestined. So all of history originates in the glorious overflow of God's complete self-sufficiency and graciousness towards others, and it ends with us praising the glory of God. So we should ask, what is the glory of God? <laughs> what a question. We use the word so often, don't we? we? It just becomes a throwaway word, I fear. Paul uses it 77 times, the word doxa. I think he uses the word doxazo to glorify maybe a dozen times. I'm not sure. I, I forgot to write that down. But here is probably, at least for me, the most important text to get at the the meaning of the of glory in the mouth of the Apostle Paul. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So blinded minds, so it's minds that are that need to see something. What do they need to see? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Now pause there. There is a, this doesn't mean the light that comes from the sun. This means the light that sh shines from the gospel. There is a, a blindness to light that you, you can either look at the gospel as it is narrated in the Bible or preached and you can see it or you don't see it. This is a spiritual light. And what, what is it? It's the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now here it says it again. God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown with this light, shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge 
Knowledge takes the place there of gospel here. Knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So here you have glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Here you have glory of God, who is in the face of Jesus Christ. So, what is the glory of God on the basis of what we see here? It is the, the outshining, the beautiful, bright, outshining of God and Jesus through the gospel as a spiritual light that comes into the unblinded, spiritually miraculous, born-again minds or hearts. Paul's going to pray later in Ephesians that the eyes of our hearts would be open to see the glory of our inheritance. You can't see it if you're dead. The glory of God, most fundamentally, is the glory that shines because of the beauty of God and the beauty of Jesus. And I mean a moral beauty, not a physical beauty. So we come back here and we ask, when it says in verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself. It sounds like God is very interested in having a people, a holy people, a family before him and to him or for himself. What does he get by redeeming sinners, choosing, predestining, redeeming, saving, keeping Guaranteeing, sealing sinners for his children. What does he get? And what he gets is the glory of being praised for his grace. What do we get? The gladness of praising his grace. So I take these before him and to himself to mean, yes, God is doing this for himself. He intends to enjoy, just like Christ intends to enjoy in 527, his beautiful bride, but what is the bride ultimately destined to be doing in her beauty? She is destined to be praising the glory of the grace. So what God beholds in us with great delight is our praise of the glory of his grace. So God is ultimate, not us. And yet, in making himself ultimate as the one whose glory is to be praised, he makes us happy and satisfied because this is what we're made for, the praise of the glory of his grace. That's an amazing passage of Scripture, 
Ephesians 1, 3-6. Praise God.